Turn in your Bible, if you would, to the first epistle of John the Apostle. We're in chapter 2 this morning, and we will uh, we'll go back and pick up in verse 1. main focus of our text this morning will be 3 through 11. We'll pick up verse 1. I invite you to stand as we hear God's word read aloud. John writes and he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. My friends, this is the word of God. It's absolutely true, and it is given to us to stay in love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, do what only you can do. Dead people don't on their own wake up. Dead people are instead given new life. So we pray, O Father, that you would do that. That by your Spirit, you would open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears and soften hard hearts and pour out your Spirit this day among your people so that we would be changed. Father, we do and pray all of these things In Jesus' most powerful and glorious and mighty and majestic name. And all God's people said, amen. Be seated. All right, so how many of you uh, know the household name Steve Jobs? Fair enough. How many of you know the household name Walter Isaacson? Few of you do. You might not have known Walter Isaacson because uh, for a long time, 
Isaacson really just sort of uh, was going about his career in his own way. Isaacson, uh, for a while, was the uh, chairman of CNN, went on to uh, work for a while at Time Magazine, is now uh, a professor of history at Tulane University in Louisiana. Isaacson is a biographer. He's written some great biographies on Benjamin Franklin and other notable historical luminaries. But it was in Steve Jobs' last years of his life that the often enigmatic, often hard to read and understand co-founder and CEO of Apple contacted Walter Isaacson to write his biography. Isaacson didn't know at the time why it was being written. Only later in the research process that he spent with Steve Jobs did he realize that Steve was dying of cancer and that the prognosis for him was terminal. In one of the last interviews that Steve gave to Walter before he ultimately died, they were going on and talking about current events and life, and uh, it was a lot for Steve. He was in bed. It was a lot for him to engage when it appeared that he had um, offered all that he was going to say that day. Walter got up to leave Steve's bedside and take his exit. And Steve stopped him, and he said, wait. And he waved for him to sit back down. Isaacson writes, it took a minute or two for him to regain enough energy to talk. Steve Jobs said, I had a lot of trepidation about this project. He finally said, referring to his decision to cooperate with this book. Steve said, I was really worried. Isaacson asked him and said, why did you do it? Listen to what Steve Jobs said. I wanted my kids to know me. I wasn't always there for them. And I wanted them to know why and understand what I did. Also, when I got sick, I realized other people would write about me if I died. And they wouldn't know anything. They'd get it all wrong. So I wanted to make sure that somebody heard what I had to say. Obviously, Isaacson had not shared with Steve what would ultimately be in the book. Later in that same conversation, Isaacson looked at Steve and said, you know, there's going to be a lot of things in this book that aren't going to make you happy. And Steve said, I know, but at least I'll know they're true. He said, maybe I'll read the book in a year if I'm still around. So if someone were to look 
at your life? What's the story that's, that it's telling? What's the story? As a Christian, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a student, as a grandmother, as a grandfather, as a widower, as a widow, as a divorcee, what is the story that your life tells? If someone were to look at you, would they get an honest assessment? Would they be able to look at you and say, I've got the whole story? This is where we find ourselves today as John is beginning now to lovingly, in a very plain spoken way, exhort the church to exhort Christians of what the response to the gospel is. Here's what we heard last week. We said that the holiness of God exposes our hearts for what they really are. And, And here's the thing. All of our hearts are in the same condition. They are a mess. There is no reason to try and make it any less than that. They're all a mess. And we said that God is both light and God is love. And so uh, the reality of God's holiness means that we ought to admit our sinfulness. We ought to admit our need. We ought to admit the fact that we're a mess. It isn't appropriate, as John reminded us, to say that we have no sin or that we have not sinned, but rather for us as believers to say this This is who I really am. I have sinned, and I still sin. You and I are in the same state. Our hearts are a mess, and we are in the same desperate place. We need a redeemer. We need redemption. We need Christ to do a work in us. The light of God cannot stand sin But the love of God sent Jesus to stand in our place. We heard this as John in verses 1 and 2 said, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin and by his spirit is now breaking within us the power that sin holds over us. And in his ascension, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus stands as our advocate. He stands before the Father not to hold back the fire and the fury of an angry God, but to advocate for us out of his abiding and continual love for us. He has never lost interest in us. We have an advocate. 
And as I said last week, I'll say it again. If you think that the grace of God, that the mercy of God, that the long-suffering of God, that the relentless pursuit of God for his people because he loves his people, if you think those characteristics somehow set as an afterthought to God's character, that he really is more like that angry God that we always hear about rather than the tender and compassionate and gracious God, if you think that because he's holy, he can't also be compassionate and tender and lovely. You've missed something. If you miss the fact that at the headwaters of God's character is his grace, is his love, is his kindness, and you think that that's somehow an afterthought, but that really the intention behind it all, the real guy behind it all, is just an angry God, you'll miss the heart of the Father. You'll think that Jesus is holding back God's wrath, but you'll always doubt if the gospel is true for you because you'll think that there will become that time where you'll mess it up one too many times and then Jesus won't be able to hold the wrath back anymore and God will come after you and get you. And if you think that, you've missed the heart of the Father. Because it not only says that we have an advocate in Christ Jesus, the righteous, but it also says he is our propitiation. This is a church word. It's a Bible word. We do not use this word in regular vernacular. It's crucial for us to hear it, and, and it's crucial for us to, un- to understand it. What exactly did Jesus Christ do on the cross? What was accomplished? Was it just a bloody execution? Was it just uh, something that happened? There was a tragedy, a miscarriage of justice. It was those things, but it's more than those things. Jesus expiated. There's another church word. Jesus expiated our sins. He, he wiped away sin's penalty. But it's more than just wiping away sin's penalty. Jesus also propitiates our sins. He turns away the wrath of God's promised punishment for sin as an acceptable sacrifice. Do you understand that the only thing that could pay the infinite debt that was owed by sin is the infinite sacrifice and love of God himself standing in yours in my place? So Jesus is not only your advocate who stands before God, he is your propitiation. He is the one who has been the acceptable sacrifice. There is no more wrath for God's people because God has poured out his wrath on Jesus. Because he is our advocate, because he is our propitiation, Because God sent his son to die for us and now his spirit to dwell within us. This is the foundation through which then John now turns around and exhorts the church. If you think the exhortation to walk in the life of love is to somehow keep God happy with you, you've missed propitiation. 
Because now, now not only do we have clean records, not only has the judge stood in our place to take our punishment and penalty, but we also have an advocate who both intercedes for us as one of his own before the throne of God, but we also have the help of the promised spirit who animates our hearts and lives in ways that no one before Jesus has ever experienced. What John then begins to talk about in verses 3 through 6 is the evidence. It is the, it is the, um, it's what bubbles up from the root of a life that has been changed by God. So I mentioned at the beginning of this series, this particular letter in seminaries around the world is the darling of New Testament professors. Because although there are 2,134 words in this epistle, there are only 303 unique words that are used. They're repeated. What is repetition good for? Learning. Not only is it good for Greek students, beloved, it's good for you and I too, isn't it? In verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In verses 3 through 6, John uses these words, know and keep in him repeatedly. So if we were to take those three verses and condense them down into one summary phrase, here it is. We know that we are in Christ if we keep his commandments. We know that we are in Christ if we keep his commandments. Much as we heard in James's letter to the church, it is this, it is the, it is the presence of saving faith is validated by seeing visible fruit. So let's just suppose for a minute that I am not a terrible gardener. Just go with it. And let's suppose that I have the wherewithal to go and buy myself an apple tree and plant it in my yard and not kill it in the whole process. So kids, I know you're coloring, but listen, here's the question. That was really just a shout out to mine. Um, if I went to the store and bought an apple tree and it begins to bear fruit, what type of fruit am I picking off of my apple tree? Someone, I heard an abood say oranges. You're not allowed to answer any more questions. 
it's going to bear apples, right? A healthy tree is going to bear fruit. It's going to bear, an apple tree is going to bear apples. That's how I know it's a healthy tree. It's bearing fruit. Now, let's just suppose for a minute that my expected harvest season comes around and there are no leaves, there are no fruit, the tree is leaning about like that, but I, because I crave your approval, go to the store, buy a bunch of apples, and staple them on the tree. Is my apple tree bearing fruit? No. If by chance harvest comes around and the tree does produce something, but it is neither pretty or edible. Would I think that my tree is healthy or sick? Good call. If my tree is bearing forth tangerines, What should I suppose that that tree is? Yahtzee. It is a tangerine tree. This is an aside, by the way. This has nothing to do with this sermon, but I do want to make this point. The type of tree that it is dictates the type of fruit that it produces. Help me out with why we hold non-Christians responsible for producing Christian fruit. What they need is not to be scolded for being tangerine trees. They need to be by the Spirit transformed into apple trees. Get it? Then we can start talking about the health of the apples on said tree. But until that comes, don't whine about the fact that it's not an apple, that it's not apples, it's tangerines. Pray for the Lord to change it from a tangerine tree to an apple tree. That aside is over. Here's the point on this. We know because of what's happening at the root that healthy trees produce fruit. Beloved, here's what John's saying. He's not saying this is how you curry God's favor. He's not saying this is how you get God to love you. He's not saying this is how you get God to like you more. You have the smile of heaven. What he's saying here is if you are in Christ, if Christ is down at the root of your life, what is going to come out of that is lovely fruit. And that's going to manifest itself by keeping the commandment. Now, what is exactly the commandment that we are being told to keep? John gets into this a little bit later on. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. 
Here's one other thing, though, I want to, I want to show you in this text. In verse 5, whoever keeps his word and in him, uh, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. Does this mean, does this mean that the only way we know that God is at work in us is if we are perfect? No. Here's, here's what it means. It doesn't carry with it the idea of sinless perfection. It rather means that the love of God is perfected in us. If we obey his commands, the love of God is being perfected in us. But there's another thing that I want you to see about this word perfected. The word perfected is in passive voice. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. It means that some other actor is at work in us doing the perfection in us. God took the initiative. So this verse really carries this meaning with it. Only someone who has been born of God, beloved by him, is a human being who is able to reciprocate this love and keep God's commandments. The way peace comes to the world is not through everybody holding hands and singing kumbaya. The way peace comes to the world is by God's spirit bringing God's people from death to life and God's people reflecting the love of God in the world. That's how peace comes. Because those people have been made an apple tree by God. And because God is at the root, through the tree comes lovely fruit. John Newton, the converted slave trader and hymn writer, said this of himself. He said, I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was. And it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. Can, can that be said about us? Can it be said about us that I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was? We're not looking for sinless perfection. Is the love of God being perfected in us? Can you see a change? Can you see an evidence of God being at work in your life? Are you able to both reflect and reciprocate the love that you have been shown? What does that, the power that does that, it is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do, that is the power to not only save us, but also to change us. Knowing God is not just to have knowledge of him, not just to um, be able to ace all of the Bible memory drills, but as Kevin said, it's to be transformed. It's to, it's to have our entire being transformed by him. And so in verses 7 through 11 then, to know God is to live a life of love. To know God is to live a life of love. To know God is to experience his love in Christ and return that love in obedience. A life before God's face for God's purposes is a life that is faithful to the commandments given by Christ. Not because this is how we earn God's favor, but because we have God's smile. 
We've been, invi- we've been invited into the life of love of our gracious God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We participate in that triunity of God. We participate in that community of self-giving love by reflecting and reciprocating the love of God that we've been shown. John is saying here in verses 7 and following that he's, he's writing an old yet current, new yet true commandment. An old yet current, a new yet true commandment. If we look on down at verse 10, we get what he is saying. If whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Old yet current. When Jesus was asked about what the greatest commandments are, he said, the greatest commandment is this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it. Pulling men from Leviticus, he said, you shall love your neighbor what? as yourself. The old commandment, you've had it from the beginning. But then Jesus in John 13 takes it and goes and and amplifies it. Look at what he says in John 13 verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? Just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, All people will know that you are my disciples. They won't know it by the church parking lot you park in, the bumper sticker on your car, the things that you flash up on social media. They will know it by the content of your actions. They'll know it by the characteristics of your life. John is saying that the quality of the love which we give should reflect the quality of the love which we have been given. The quantity of the love which we give should reflect the quantity of the love that we have been given. John's using stark contrast. So here in 9 through 11, he gives us a test. He gives us a test. Let's see if you really are understanding what I'm saying. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So again, John goes to this very stark phrase of whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother. Now, do you think Do you think, honestly, do you think that John actually meant by saying the word hate that there was to be a a heinous animus, that it was the extreme form of the word? When we think about hate and we think of all the extreme examples of it, do you think that that was what John was implying going on in the church? No. No. See, here's the thing. You and I are always, always, always trying to get ourselves off the hook. If you think that John meant hate in its most extreme form, you can say, I don't do that. Not talking to me. He's talking about everyone else out there.
Charles Hodge said this. It often happens that men are very pious without being very good. Their religion expends itself in devotional feelings and services, wait for it, while their evil passions of their nature remain unsubdued. Did you hear that? You you can look to be the most pious person in the room. You can know the scriptures, memorize the catechism, sing all the old songs and try your darndest on the new songs, get principles from the sermon, and yet still functionally operate as a non-Christian if you are loveless to your brother, if you are indifferent to your brother, if you pursue your own joy while showing callousness to your brother. John is not saying, wow, that's just a really unfortunate way to go about it, but whatever, people are people. No, what he says is, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. What John is saying is, if you are all about you and Jesus and that's all you need, but there is a callousness and indifference to your brother, Failure to love your brother, according to John, is in fact hatred of your brother. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So again, are we looking for perfection here? No, but is the love of God being perfected in us? Is there a sense in which more and more every day it is not us going and looking at other people and saying, your life for mine, but rather it is us, it is you and I, in those little moments of our day, my life for yours. Your injustice is my injustice. Your sorrow is my sorrow. Your lament is my lament. This is what it is to love our brother. It is to enter into their sorrow and choose for our sake to not go on about our happy lives until they are also experiencing the completeness of joy in Jesus. This is what it means to be the people of God. There is no individual project. We're in it as a community. The one who has been loved shows love. And this person doesn't stumble into wrong thinking or wrong living. And they don't cause others to stumble either. Why did Steve Jobs need that book written about him? Steve needed that book written about him because his life, he knew, told one story. If you knew about his Um, antics. He was relentless. He was callous. He was angry. He was distant. He was aloof. He was ungracious. 
and he wanted his kids to know a different man. So, in a sense, Jobs needed Walter Isaacson to be his advocate even into death. To plead his side of the story so that there would be another witness besides the one that he left. Beloved, so you hate your brother. You've shown callous indifference. You have walked in darkness. There is diseased fruit growing on the tree, and you feel like, I am stuck. Listen, we have an advocate. We have one who didn't just write our story in the best possible light, but he came to our tomb. He raised us from death to life, and he gave us his life and his record and took our crummy one on himself. We don't need an advocate to make us look better. We needed and have an advocate to make us new. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did. That's why when you look at your life and you see the wreckage of the story that it tells, you don't point at your life, you point at his. But by grace, you know that it's not simply, I'm a mess, but Jesus is awesome. (laughs) But what it means to follow Jesus is it means to look more and more like Jesus. And he hasn't left you alone, has he? He sent his spirit to work in you. He put God's people around you. He gave his word to train and shape you. Because he's never lost interest in you. Even when you lost interest in him, he has never lost interest in you. You aren't perfect. You're going to fail the test in thought, word, and deed, both by what you've done and by what you've left undone. But, beloved, you have a faithful advocate, Jesus the righteous, who has given his life for yours. And if Christ is at the root of your life by the power and presence of the Spirit, God will bring forth lovely fruit. Praise him for it. And if you don't see fruit, ask him for it. Maybe it means that you're not an apple tree yet, still a tangerine tree. But he's faithful. And if you ask him, he'll save you. To the praise of his glory. Amen.